Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and it is my great pleasure to be here with all of you this morning. In fact, this is one of the places that my heart is happiest, right here with all of you ladies studying God's Word. You know, this week we looked at Psalm 99. It's a very short psalm, only nine verses. We have no idea who wrote it, but in those nine verses, he packed so many truths. In fact, he talks about several of the Lord's attributes, but the one that receives the most time in Psalm 99 happens to be his holiness. I hope you saw that as you did your questions this week. In fact, it's repeated three different times. Did you know it's supposed to be a really big deal when something is repeated three times in the scripture? Yeah, it means notice this. Attention, look at this. You know, have you ever noticed none of the other attributes are ever said three times in a row? Look at the top of your um, outline. I put uh, Isaiah 6.3. This is one of the times in Scripture you see it. It says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, have you ever heard them say, Sovereign, sovereign, sovereign is the Lord of hosts. Or loving, loving, loving. Or merciful. They can't even say that three times. It's hard. None of those are ever repeated, but holy is throughout Scripture. We see it over and over again. You know, when we speak of the holiness of God, it's like his holiness is the harmony of all of his attributes. I read that in a commentary. It's the harmony of all of his attributes. And I thought that was a great way to think of it. You know, when we speak of holiness in terms of humans, we, we know that it means for us to be set apart to be different from the rest of the world. We live differently than the rest of the world. But when you apply holiness, that term to our Heavenly Father, it becomes a much deeper meaning. Because it means not only complete separateness of Him from all creation, because they're sinful, but it means His moral separateness as well from all of sin. See, our King is unable to sin. He's perfect. Perfect in every way. And when you let that sink in for a minute and you start to look at all of his attributes, it changes how you look at all of them. They become deeper and richer, more powerful in your lives. Now, if you haven't already done so, I want you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 99 and follow along. I'm gonna go ahead and read the entire thing today and then we're gonna go back and take pieces of it, each verse, and go through each verse. So follow along starting at verse one. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them and you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Can you believe how many exclamation points there are in that short nine verses? There are seven. I recall getting texts from my college-age daughter that had that many, 
and it would have been all in caps, and it would have said something like, I've been studying for two hours, and I've got, just realized I've got nothing to wear to the football game tonight. It's dire. Quite, it'd be exclamation points, caps, and then it would say, please send money. I've got to go buy something. But there would be exclamation points. That tells me, look at this. I need your attention. That's what this is doing. I think it's doing the same thing in, verse, in these nine verses. Look at this. This is important stuff. Something tells me those seven exclamation points are something we all needed to hear. You know, Psalm 99 is one of the enthronement psalms. Some of their Bibles call it royal psalms. But the enthronement psalms were, were written to exalt God as king. And, and they spoke about him being the ruler over humans and creation. There are, there are six of them, and there are 47, 93, 96, 97, 98. And then the sixth one is this one, Psalm 99. Now, they would have used these, apparently, throughout the year in their worship, and they would have been used to remind Israel that Yahweh, their king, was king of kings. They would remind them that he is over everything and ruler over everything. Now, when we look at Psalm 99 in the English translation, it's a little bit different than it was in the, in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew was written in four stanzas, and each stanza had three lines. And, and a lot of the commentary said that gave it perfect symmetry, which I thought was really cool. A psalm about our king who is sovereign over everything and ruler of everything is in perfect symmetry, just like a life lived under his will, under his sovereign rule. You know, um, it, well, if we look in a couple of other enthronement psalms, 93 and 97 specifically, they have a different tone. Look at your verse sheet. I put 93.1 on there. It says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed and he's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and it, is, it shall never be moved. Then drop down to 97.1 on your verse sheet. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Exclamation point. They were so celebratory, so joyful. They're rejoicing in these psalms. And then Psalm 99 takes a completely different tone. I like to say it's more bass than treble in this one. It's like deep, deeper meaning. Something different is happening here. And as we read through those, we find out that our holy king is sovereign. That's the very first thing. It says, our Lord reigns. He is over everything. And when I mean say everything, I mean everything. Good, bad, and ugly. See, that truth is the most fundamental underlying truth, basic truth of all theology. If you can't get past that, you might as well stop until you can get that sunk deep into your heart and your brain. See, the truth that our Lord and King reigns, he reigns with absolute authority over the entire universe, and it's all under his rule. The Lord reigns. You know, I've thought about that about this much over the years, probably this much. But then when I got this and I started to read it back in end of November, things were really awesome. And I read the Lord reigns and I'm like, yeah, of course he does. Have you seen me? We're drinking from our saucer. Our cup's overflowing. Things are good at the Jones house. We had just had Thanksgiving. Things were looking really good. My kids had been home. We'd had lots of sugary carbs. We were happy. 
happy, happy. I had done all my decorating because my daughters had helped me. I had done most of my Christmas shopping. This is all before December even hit. And I was moving right along. I'm thinking, this is awesome. The Lord reigns. Of course this makes sense. As I was reading this and meditating on it. And, and even one day I had lunch with friends and then I went and played a round of golf. Like this is the best year ever. <laughs> and then just four short hours after I walked off the golf course, I get a call. And it's from my mother. And she said, I don't feel very good. I think I may need to go to the hospital. And I said, oh, really? I said, it's 8 o'clock. <laughs> she goes, no, I think I probably do. So we took her to the hospital. And as it turns out, she really needed to be at the hospital. It was, it was bad. And we were there for several days. And during those several days, the doctors did a whole host of tests and still knew nothing, what was causing these severe, severe issues that were going on in her medical issues. And one night, when I was sitting in that hospital room, it was about three o'clock in the morning, I remember this moment vividly, I thought, I better get on it, I've gotta teach Psalm 99. And I picked it up, because I couldn't sleep, mom was snoring, and I got in my recliner that's so comfortable in the hospital, <laughs> and I started reading, and I read, the Lord reigns, let his people tremble. took on a completely different meaning to me. Completely different meaning. Because things had changed in just four short hours that one day. And I read through that again, and I started to chew on it some more, and he started to show me, I've been working on this for months, Vanita. And I realized that my king, my king, my God is so sovereign and so busy with everything, but he was able to work out every single detail leading up to this moment because he knew we were going to need it. And then I thought, he not only reigns there, he showed me I reign, Vanita, and whatever they come back and tell you about your mother, whatever that is, I reign over that too. And I was overwhelmed when I thought, what if I had to do this without knowing that he reigns in my life? I did not want to be there, not at all. This whole psalm that was so joyful and awesome to me had taken a completely different meaning, and I can tell you it became my comfort. Because over the next eight weeks, I would watch my mother pass, and he reigned at that very moment when she took his hand and let go of mine. He reigned even then, and it was amazing the things he did for us. We could talk for days about it. it was, it's shocking to me that he would want to be in every single detail of our lives. And he reigned during that turmoil. And he reminded me over and over, I said enthroned, I am over this, I got this. And he did, and that was my comfort. The rest of that verse goes on, and he said he's enthroned between the cherubim. Some verses say, some translations say between the cherubim. My, that might make a little bit more sense because when you think about the cherubim first, we don't think about angels like we think about on the uh, Valentine's cards. You know the guys I'm talking about? They're chubby, they have a diaper, <laughs> arrows, and they're shooting love at you, which does not make sense to me at all. <laughs> it seems painful and horrible, but that's not what he's talking about. These are these powerful angels. They're like warrior type angels. We see them throughout scripture and just about every time we see them, they're guarding something. 
They're guarding something of God's and, and protecting for him. Look at Genesis 3.24 in your verse sheet. It says, he drove out the man, that's Adam, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, it wouldn't have been that little chubby dude with a diaper. No one was gonna run away from that. And then look at Exodus 25, 20 through 21 on your verse sheet. This is, has to do with the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimonies that I shall give you. They were like God's bouncers. They're like protecting his stuff. They're these big, mighty guys, and, and, and they're, they're put in places where he needs things protected and guarded. So they're nothing like those little cherubs we think about. Now, this, this would have made perfectly good sense to them because they would be thinking of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant when this psalm was written. And, and remember the Ark of the Covenant? It, it was in the tabernacle early on, and they carried it. They set it up and took it down and went across the... the the wilderness all the way to the promised land, and that's where the, the Ark of the Covenant would rest. But then also later on in Jerusalem, where it is now, it's, uh, at this time, was, it was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. It would have been during Solomon's reign, probably it was, the temple was completed somewhere around 957 BC, and that's where it would have been sitting. So that would have been very vivid to them. Now verse two says that he is great in Zion, this is confusing. In the Hebrew text, it says the Lord in Zion is great, which kind of helped me understand it better. The word Zion means fortified or fortification, but it also means it's another name for Jerusalem. Okay, and they would use that interchangeably. Uh, also the city of David, you hear that sometimes. But then it goes on, it says he is exalted over all the people. See, our holy king sets exalted over all, all things. He's high above us. He's high above our, even our highest thoughts. Higher thoughts of who he is and what he is. We can't even grasp what that is. You know, I read something that said, which I loved, his highest are not high to him and the lowliest are not despised by him. That's our king. He's the perfect king. I dare you to find a leader today anywhere Anywhere that, that would fall into that. Even our history books would fall in that definition. Only our holy king fits that definition. Now verse three goes on to say, because of this, let's praise his great and awesome name. He is holy. There it is. It's the first of the, he is holy. First of the three that we're gonna see. And he says, our holy king is sovereign. Let's praise him for that. You know, in one commentary I read, it said that God's holiness is a part of everything he does, everything he is. It's his essence. So when we take the time to look at his attributes through the lens of his holiness, we start to see things like God's love is a pure, holy love. It's not selfish. It's not, it's not evil. There's no bad motives in it. And when we look at his power, it's a holy power. Holy power that's never abused. It's never lorded over anyone. And we can go on and on. And so when we do that with his sovereignty, we look at the, through the lens of his holiness, his sovereignty, we see that our perfect and sinless king has always 
and always will have our best interest at heart. He doesn't rule us with evil, selfish motives. Holy motives is what he has. Holy motives. And what he allows in our lives or brings into our lives, it's the best for us. It may not seem like it at the time, but it's the best for us. And sometimes I have to, I have to say that's the one thing I have to hang on to. If there's a struggle in my life, I can look at it and say, God can't sin. I have a perfect king. There's a reason for this. I don't want to waste it. Again, if we could only say this about our leaders. I have to think, if, if we look at our leaders on, in the world today, the only reason they're here and that God allowed us to have leaders is so we'd be looking for him. Because we look at some like, oh. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus when he returns. Look at 2 Peter 3.13 on your verse sheet. It says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. <sighs> These guys don't matter. That's where we got to keep our eyes focused on the one coming to rule. Moving on to this next section in the psalm, we quickly are reminded of another attribute of our king. Look back at verse 4 with me. It says, the king in his might loves justice. I think we get lots of clues here. He has established equity. You have executed justice and righteous in Jacob. I don't think it takes a Bible scholar to figure out that he's trying to say that our holy king is just. He says it over and over. He says he loves justice. He establishes equity. He executes justice and righteousness in Jacob. Now, do you remember last week, Lynn told us that the, word, the name Jacob, a lot of times it interchanged for the nation of Israel. Right? And that's what's happening in this verse. The psalmist is saying that God has, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel, been their holy king, and he's, and he's been just as he dealt with them in all the rebellious things they'd done. He had been just in, the, in his dealings. Our holy king has had and still has today absolute power, and it's never, ever been used for selfish or evil motives, ever. He executes his justice with perfect equity and righteousness. Unlike our leaders today who I don't even know what they base it on. Their justice is executed at the whim of public opinion or whatever twisted idea they have at the time, but not on God's word where it should be. Verse five delivers us that second of the he is holies that we, we see. And he reminds us of the most fundamental aspect of worship. He says, worship at his footstool. Now, most likely the psalmist is referring to the Ark of the Covenant, which was resting in the temple. Look at 1 Chronicles 28.2 on your verse sheet. It says, then King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. But it was also a very common image for them because at that time, the king would sit on a throne and they, almost all earthly kings had some type of footstool on their throne. Even King Solomon had a footstool. I, I, I searched for an image and I found one. Now, I know what you're thinking, all you UT fans out there. You think he was a UT fan, don't you? I did. And I don't want to get that rumor started, being a horned frog. So 
I hesitated to even use this slide. It even has the right colors, which is shocking to me. But, um, but if you can absolutely put that out of your mind and glance down, you see a footstool. And that's why I chose this one. You could actually see the footstool, but then Solomon put Bevo on it. I don't know why. But um, anyway, there it is. But if you look at that footstool, and let that just set for a second, and then you look back at verse five, where it says worship at his footstool, you can absolutely see the image they would get with that. See, his power, his holiness, his goodness would cause, should cause us to exalt him, lift him up. He would have been higher than them already. And it, it almost makes me think, lifting him up, makes me think of like a sporting event, you know, where they take the hero and they, at the end, and they're celebrating with him up on their shoulders. We elevate him, but then it says, worship at his footstool, and when you look at that, you're able to understand, because it doesn't say, worship at my golden armrest, or my Bevo backrest on my seat. It says, my footstool. I mean, you can get that into your head. See, to worship at his footstool required one to bow down in front of him and worship at his feet. It's a place of humility. Proper worship of our holy king requires us to raise him up and humble ourselves. Simply put, more him, less us. That's how you do it. That's the, that's the kind of worship that's not just isolated to Sunday morning or, or Wednesday or Thursday mornings or whenever you're worshiping and, and singing his praises. It's much, much deeper than that. It's, it's a kind of worship that permeates every, every ounce of your life, every area of your life. No matter what you're doing, you're worshiping at his feet. You know, I shared with you earlier that I had the great privilege of being with my mother during the last few days of her life on earth. And during those last couple of weeks, I was blessed to be able to witness her worshiping her Lord from her bed. Now, she wasn't singing at all. In fact, I can tell you in, well, 50-some years, I'm gonna give you all of it, but I never heard my mom sing. I don't care if it was a church song or a secular song. I never heard my mother sing. So she wasn't singing from her bed. But I recall hearing my mother over and over and over share Jesus with, and, and the peace that he had given her, not just at that time that she was, the stuff she was going through, but her whole life, she would tell them about his peace. She told every single one of her grandkids about Jesus. She told every caregiver that would take the time to listen to her about Jesus. She even, I got to witness, she even witnessed to the chaplain yeah, get this. He comes in to comfort my mother because she's, you know, decided not to seek treatment for her cancer. And he leaves saying, oh my gosh, that peace is not just for you when you're right there on your death, but it's for us everywhere. And he was actually struggling with something at the time. And he left thanking her. And I got to witness that. But my favorite one was towards the very end, she got really serious with me. She had to do this a lot all through my life. But she got really serious and she said, Vanita, promise me this. I said, what? She said, make sure they talk more about Jesus at my funeral than about me. And guess what they did? There was very few words about my mom and there was a whole lot about Jesus. She was smiling about that because that's all she cared about to the bitter end is what she wanted. That's how you worship. 
That's how you, you don't have to sing one word. It's how your life worships him. Verse five ends with he is holy. Again, we're reminded the king's holiness and all the harmony of all of his attributes. And when we look at his justice through the lens of his holiness, we see that he executes perfect, unselfish justice with motivations that, because of his great love for us. That's his motive. That's why he does it. Look at Deuteronomy 32.4 on your verse sheet. It says, the rock, that's not the guy in Hollywood, this is God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. See, when we look at our king, king's justice through the lenses of his holiness, no matter what injustice is going on in your life, no matter what struggle there is, no matter what's going on, you're able to say with complete, complete confidence the words that A.W. Tozer said all these years ago when he said, I am thankful that justice is in the hands of the Lord. Amen. Amen for that, because we would mess that up in a heartbeat. You know, the next three verses, the psalmist uses the lives of three great men in the Old Testament to remind the Israelites, and us of course, that our holy king is not only sovereign and just, but he is also forgiving, thank goodness again. In verse six, we're reminded that Moses, Aaron, and Samuel each called upon the Lord. Part of that says they calls Moses and Aaron priests. Can be a little confusing, but when you know that the, the Hebrew translation of the word that was used is Kohen, which is for priest, but it's from the derivative a Kohan, which means to plead a cause. It's not a elevated priest that would be in the temple. It was someone who pleads a case for, the intercessor, a mediator. So under that definition, all three of these guys were being called priests. And many times these three guys had to intercede, intercede for Israel as they were rebelling, and many times God, because of that intercession, turned away his wrath. But you know, these men didn't only call on God, they were also obedient. They obeyed his statutes. You know, I like, I like that it says he was among, they were among those called, that called upon his name. Makes it almost think that there's like some group. This group here called upon God's name and they're close to God's heart. That's a group I wanna be in. I mean, if I'm gonna strive to be in a group ever, that's the group I wanna be in. The one that calls on the Lord. Whenever, whatever I need, I call on him. Now, I wanna touch on something before we move on here. A quick glance at this in verse six and seven might make it easy to think that they asked, they obeyed, and God answered them and gave them whatever they needed. Boy, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But those two verses are so much deeper than that. You know, there's this, there's this idea out there today that prayer is, operates in such a way that, that one pays or qualifies for answers to prayer with, with the currency of good deeds. And, and it's kind of a this for that, and it makes God and prayer and answered prayer and obedience kind of this mechanism, this system of how we're gonna get what we want and it puts, the, it puts the control in the petitioner's hands and not in the one being petitioned. It's kind of like God is a divine vending machine. You know, where you just kind of go and you put a few units of obedience and pull the lever and then just get ready for all your answered prayers. And that is wrong. That is so wrong. 
Bottom line is this. Look at your verse sheet. It says, verse John 5, 14, it says, and this is a confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he answers us. It says he hears our prayers. He doesn't say he answers and gives us exactly what we want every time, whenever we ask. And let's be honest, thank goodness. Because we, as much as we think we know what's best for us, we don't, he does. And contrary to this popular teaching about prayer, prayer is not the way that we get from God what we want. But rather, prayer is a means that God uses to give us, to give us what we need. That's how it works. And we see it hinted at in verse 7 when it says they kept his statutes, the statutes he gave them. See, they were obedient, of course. But to be obedient to his statutes, guess what? They had to know his statutes. And to know his statutes, what did they have to do? Study his statutes. They had to spend time at his footstool and, and, and talking to him about those statutes. They spent time with him. If you're looking for a formula for answered prayer, it's right here, right in verse seven. If you wanna become more powerful in your prayer, and you want to experience the joy of the Lord giving you the desires of your heart, you got to change your heart. That's how that happens. you got to be committed to reading, meditating, planning his statutes, his words, and his, the words of his will into your heart. And then you obey it, which is not the complete answer. There are no shortcuts to this. Simply put, the more we study God's word, the more we know his will. The more we know his will, the better we know how to obey him. The, the more we obey him, the more we begin to pray in his will. And the more we begin to pray in his will, we begin to change our hearts. And we begin to desire the same things that our king desires. And, when, and then our holy king gives us the desires of our hearts. Because now our desires are his desires. And that's what he's wanted all along. We can rightly assume that these three great men not only called upon his name, they also called upon his name according to his will. Because they had learned his statutes, they'd planted them in their hearts, and they obeyed them as they lived them out in their lives. Not perfect lives, of course, we know that. We did a study in these, on these guys. Can you imagine if all your failures were recorded in a book? Oh my gosh, that would be the most scandalous book out there. I mean, and we'd have to drag it around in a wagon. These guys weren't perfect, but their hearts were in the right place. These guys desired to live in God's will. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't always hit the mark, but they were trying nonetheless. I have, a, I have an acronym for this, actually, and I use it in relationship to my golf shot. I use it a lot. It's called RIPE, R-I-P-E. It means right idea, poorly executed. <laughs> it's awesome. 90% of my shots are exact same thing. They knew what they were supposed to do because they had studied his statutes, but they didn't always execute it properly or at the proper time. It reminds me of the day I turned 40, which was just a couple years ago. <laughs> and it, we were all up early because we had school, and I remember my husband Cameron had made all this breakfast, and we were going to sit around the table, and, and Khaki, my youngest kid, was five or six. He was in kindergarten. And she listened as everybody around the table was giving me their birthday wishes. And, you know, she's, you could tell she needed to say something. And 
So she finally stopped and she said, Mommy, you look so much older today. You know, and everybody, and that's what we say to them, isn't it? To a little kid, you look so much older. And, and she's like, she's so proud because that's what people have said to her. And the other kids are like. <laughs> so she looks around and she says, I mean, I mean, mommy, you look so much bigger today. <laughs> right idea, poorly executed. And of course, there was some more of the around the table and, and finally she knew she had done something that wasn't quite right so she's like more gusto. She looks at me and she goes, you're so much older and bigger today. And it was like the whole table just burst into tears after that and we were laughing so hard. But you get it? Right idea? Poorly executed? It could be stamped on my gravestone one day and we all do it. We all do it day in and day out. God knows our hearts. He knows that we want to obey him for the most part. There's sometimes I think, maybe it's not fun. But you know what I mean. You know what you're supposed to do. We don't always do it right. And reading his word leads us to knowing and praying in his will. And eventually it leads us to receiving the desires of our heart, which are his desires as well. That's what they did. Verse 8, after working it out in those verses 6 and 7, the psalmist says, you answer them. You were forgiving God to them. You know, most commentaries agree that the forgiveness they're speaking of here was for the rebellious Israelites, which is probably so. They had a lot to be forgiven for. But he also, they also say it could be applying directly to these three men because they did the right things throughout their life, right idea, poorly executed. Remember when Moses was told to take the staff and strike the rock and out of anger, uh, not strike it, speak to the rock and he would have water? Well, he got angry and he struck the rock, not once, but twice. Right idea, poorly executed, again. Aaron, we probably mostly remember him because he built a golden calf and got everybody to worship it, remember? But he was also there, he was also there when Moses struck the rock. And because of that, neither one of those two were gonna make it into the promised land. Samuel was also a great man of God, but he failed God when he appointed his ne'er-do-well sons to be judges over Israel. They were corrupt. He knew they were corrupt. He knew they weren't men of God, but yet he did it. They took their corruption into their leadership style and everything became corrupt and God appointed a corrupt king and Samuel went to his grave in despair that he had ever regrets of ever appointing his sons to that point, that, to be judges. See, they had received forgiveness for their sin, but they still suffered consequences for those forgiven sins. There is such a thing as God sent consequences for forgiven sin, and it's not sent to settle accounts. He doesn't need to do that to settle the account. He does that with Jesus. But because of it, it's because of his great love for us. He loves us. He wants us to learn that he can't take sin lightly. He wants us to be sanctified. And, and in the end, he wants us to be humbled by it. Look at Hebrews 12, 6 on your verse sheet. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter, by the way, whom he receives. Even though we receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins, we may also suffer the consequences of those forgiven sins. God's vengeance for sin does not prevent his forgiveness, and his forgiveness does not prevent vengeance. There are consequences. But when we look at the forgiveness of our king through the lens of his holiness, we can trust that he's gonna handle our sin with the perfect balance of forgiveness and discipline. 
It's going to be exactly what we need. Now, the psalmist ends this psalm by saying, Exalt the Lord your God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. There it is. It's the third holy right there. That means pay attention to this, ladies. It says, it's very similar to verse 5, but it, instead of saying at his footstool, like Bevo's footstool up there, he says, worship at the holy mountain. Now, this would have made a lot of sense to them. The holy mountain to, them, to the Israelites would have been Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, which is where the temple was built, the highest point in Jerusalem. So they knew exactly what that meant. It makes good sense to me too, though. I can tell you there's no place on earth I feel closer to God than in the mountains. It's my favorite place on earth. Just like the footstool alludes to humility, I can say sitting at the base of a mountain and looking up at it has the same exact effect on me. It's very humbling. Now, looking back at Psalm 99, it revealed to us that our Lord is also our king, but he's not only our king, he's our holy king. That changes everything. He's a king like no other, a king that because of his holiness is unable to sin, a king who has never had an evil or selfish intention, a king that is sovereign over all that is seen and unseen. He loves justice and executes it with complete wisdom and perfect timing. He is our king that desires to dwell with us. He hears us when we call on his name, and he's not only willing to forgive us, he's able to forgive us. And he's not only able to forgive us, He's able to remove that sin completely from our list of failures. Verse 9 tells us how we honor and glorify our king. We do it by worshiping him. Paul also tells us this in his letter to the Romans. Look at your verse sheet at 12.1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We worship our holy king by lifting him high and humbling ourselves before his throne in everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. Psalm 99 had a much different feel. It was more reverent. It was more awe-inspiring, not so much joyful and celebratory like it was in 93 and 97. It focuses on the holiness of God, and I hope you'll spend some time focusing on the holiness of God. You know, my son Casey and I were discussing the topic of the Lord's holiness when he was home this last weekend, and he was home for a visit, and he gave me something that I think perfectly explains where I am in my study of holiness right now. It's from a book he read called Astonished by God, and there's a chapter in there about God's holiness, and it is deep, like it is a lot. But the very last page of that chapter said this, It says, in the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may yet to be more to know about our God, but that is beyond any words. And then he goes on and he quotes Habakkuk 2.20, and it says, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth Be silent before him. See, Psalm 99 causes us to look at our king through the lens of his holiness. And when we do that, it leads us to a worship that we worship him in reverence and awe and in wonder. Please pray with me. Father, we have no idea how big, how amazing, how holy you are. We wanna know, and I'm sure we can't even 
take in what you want us to know about it, Father. Father, I pray that we would want to be even just a millionth of that holiness in our lives, Father, that we would be set apart for you, that everything we do points others to you and everything we say, everything we do, everything we think, Lord, it would honor and worship you. In Christ's name I pray this.